Lord, I chose that song because it's been so long since we've heard thunder, but we've heard it this week again and again and again as if it were the very voice of God. And so we praise you, Lord, for answering our prayers for rain, and we praise you for your glory on display in creation. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have eyes to see your glory in the creation. We know, Father, as unbelievers, uh, we took no notice of you in creation. We, we internally were, were born with the understanding that you exist, and yet we didn't give glory to you, we didn't give thanks to you, and we didn't recognize you through the things that you have made. But now we do, and so, Father, I pray that you'd help us not to miss it, this changing of the seasons, going from the heat of summer to the cold of winter. Lord, you are, your hand is in it all, and so we praise you and we give you thanks for it. And uh, Lord, help us to worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Have a seat. Well, we actually have notes this week, and... Um, I don't know if we have enough for everybody, I hope we do, but we've been talking about reconciliation and forgiveness, and uh, I'm looking at your set of notes here just so we can review. Let, let's go back actually two weeks, and if I were to ask you, um, if you were to come to me after Sunday school and say, my spouse and I had a fight, and I were to say to you, why did you fight, you would say what? Okay, if you can't think of it, maybe, maybe you were mumbling it, but if, uh, if you can't think of it, tell me a scripture you would go to to answer that question, except for Jeff Dunn. You can't answer that. <laughs> what scripture would you go to? I hear it. Say it loud. James 4. That'd be a great place to start because James 4, 1 says what? It asks a question, why do we fight and quarrel, right? And his answer is what? What is his answer? Okay, do we need to look there in our Bibles again? James 4. You know, these things are so, so important and practical. But uh, if we don't remember them after we leave, that's why I want to keep referring to this again and again, because I know my mind... <laughs> It's like a sieve, doesn't matter what I pour in. Uh, I'll give you an example. This morning I woke up, 6 o'clock, right? 6 o'clock, I woke up, and, um, and I looked at the clock, and I went, what time do the elders meet now? Okay, so I'm, I'm the pastor, I should know this. But we changed from two services to one service, you know, a long time ago. But I still get confused. What time are we supposed to meet? And then I thought, listen to the logic of this. Okay, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. And in my, in my delirium, I said, we don't meet at 6.15 anymore. <laughs> I'm going to give myself another hour. So I grabbed my iPhone and set it for another hour. And uh, as I was leaving, an hour and a half later, 7.30, my wife said, gee, I thought you'd be at elders meeting by now. And I was like, why would I do that? And then it dawned on me, they've already been meeting for 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> and I'm not there. And uh, it's easy to forget, isn't it? Tell me, tell me you forget too, or else uh, I'm just going to run out of here. 
So we're all prone to forget. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy, the theme of the book of Deuteronomy is remember and do not forget, remember and do not forget, remember and do not forget. And Paul comes along and he says, look, it's no problem for me to remind you of these things. And so uh, I'm not picking on you when I say, Let's, tell me what James chapter 4 verse 1 says because I know that we're prone to forget. I know how prone I am to come into a sermon or even after I get done preaching and someone comes up and says, remember when you said? No, I don't remember. Um, but we're prone to forget these things, but we need to remember them. And so James chapter 4 verse 1 says this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your what? Say it. Pleasures. The word pleasure here comes from the Greek word hedone, which, from which we get hedonism. Love of pleasure. Isn't the reason that you're fighting that you love your pleasures or you love what you love? You love what you want. And so he goes on. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? This is, this is military strategy. In fact, the Greek here is, uh, it's not stratego, but it's something like that. It, it, it's the word from which we get strategy. We, we militaristically strategize against one another. Why? Because we want something. It's not your source, your pleasures that wage war. You lust and do not have. And remember, last two weeks we talked about the definition of lust, right? <coughs> Lust here is, is the, the Greek word um, epithumia, which means what? Do you remember? Strong desire. Not necessarily a bad desire. Might even be a biblical desire. Might be a desire for respect, which is biblical. Might be a, uh, a desire for love, which is biblical. How do you know if it's sin? How do you know if a good desire is turned into sin? You need to know this. It's going to be on the test. It turns, a good desire turns into a sin when? When I want it so badly, I'm willing to sin to get it or sin if I can't have it. If I want it so badly, I'm willing to sin to get it or sin if I can't have it. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. What's he talking about there? It's a reference to Jesus' teaching on anger, I think. If you were sinfully angry, you have committed murder in your heart. You, you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And back in James chapter 1, he said something very, very similar. Or at least he's talking about the same thing, and he takes it to the same source. Look at verse 13. Let no, this is James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own, what? Lusts. His own strong desires are leading him astray. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4 calls them deceitful desires. I tell people all the time in counseling, your desires are lying to you. They're promising you things they can't deliver. Uh, but each one is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it give, brings forth death. That's where sin goes. It's the death, eternal death, ultimately, for unbelievers. But even in our lives, it's the death of fellowship, the death of marriages, the death of relationship between parents and children and, and other people. There's death all around. It's carnage. And it all comes down to this. We fight and quarrel because we want something that we don't have. 
and we're willing to sin in order to get it, or to sin if we can't have it, or if we can't keep it, keep what we already have. So the question that I gave you a couple weeks ago was to kind of summarize all of this, and it starts with, I do, finish it, I do, I do what I do because I want what I want. So here's the thing. You start feeling yourself get tense and angry toward that person in your life. Here's the question. Right now, before I say anything and sin with my mouth, soul, what do you want? What do I want? Is the glory of God Glory of God at stake right now? Is that what I want? Do I want to see Jesus Christ exalted and praised? Is that why I'm angry like Jesus was angry? Or do I just want something, something good, something that I may even deserve, but I want it so badly I'm willing to sin to get it or sin if I can't have it? What do I want? And I'm telling you, you can do that self-diagnosis anytime you get angry. And here's another hint for those of you who are raising young children. If you ask them after a, after a quarrel, right, after a fight, why did you do that? And what are they going to say? I don't know. If I asked you after a fight or quarrel, why? I don't know. You might be more like a lawyer and, and be able to give your perspective. But most of the time, kids are just going to, I don't know. But if you ask them, when you got angry, what did you want? They might need a little bit of help, but they're going to be able to identify what they wanted. And then you can take them to, did you want it so badly you were willing to sin to get it? This is the problem. This is the problem with the human heart. And then you take the next step to the gospel. This is why Jesus came to die. We don't have to live like this. We don't have to be consumed by our own desires and killing the relationships around us. This is why Christ came to die, to, to forgive us from our, of our sin. Sin is the problem. And if you can help your children see that, then you will, you will take them way down the road in terms of understanding the gospel. Okay? Is that helpful? I didn't think so either. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, work through this for a, a little bit. Forgiveness is man's greatest need. This is number two in your notes. We need God's forgiveness, and we call that judicial forgiveness. First of all, we need God's judicial forgiveness. That brings us to salvation. And secondly, after salvation, we need another kind of forgiveness, and that's parental forgiveness. And this is already in your notes, so we won't dig into that. Uh, but secondly, we need not only God's forgiveness, but we need man's forgiveness, and we learned last week that we're to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. And how has God forgiven us? You remember last week we talked about how in the Old Testament God says in, um, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah that he, he chooses, not that he forgets our sins, but he chooses not to remember them against us. He chooses not to remember them against us. That's, okay, this is the end of forgiveness. Once Everything else has been taken care of, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, at the end, when forgiveness has been asked for and granted, you don't remember it against them. You know, the whole, the whole thing about forgive and forget, that's a nice axiom, and you should forgive and forget, in the sense that, not that you get amnesia toward 
uh, about that sin, although eventually you may just forget that it happened, and that would be wonderful. But really big things, it's, it's really hard to forget. It just gets burned into your mind. So that's not really the issue. The real issue is, are you choosing to remember it against that person? And then, uh, so then there were uh, these promises. We promise that we cancel their debt, and we do it from the heart. Why should we forgive? And I gave you three things. Because we were created to show the world what God is like, and because we remember how much we've been forgiven. And thirdly, because we were warned of the consequences of not forgiving. Okay, so now we get into the nitty-gritty. How should we forgive? How should we forgive? Um, and there's going to be a couple of answers to that question. And the first one is transactionally. So the question is, how shall we forgive? And the answer is, we should forgive transactionally. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. Turn to Luke chapter 17. Did we start, did we, we get into Luke 17 last week? I'm sorry, I just taught this whole thing down in Granbury, and it seems really fresh, so I don't want to re be repeating myself. We, we forgive transactionally. Now listen to this text. This is a really important text, and you all have heard this text before. You've read this text before. And yet I, I suspect that most of us have heard this text taken apart and preached in sections, which we preachers like to do. But when you do that, when you divide it up sometimes, it makes for good preaching, but you might lose the flow of the context and see that the end of this section really is speaking about the beginning of this section, and it is. The end of this section is that whole thing about um, when, when, when a master is out in the field and he's working and it's, it's lunchtime and he comes back into the house and he brings his servant, does he say to the servant, why don't you sit down and let me serve you? You've been working so hard. Or does he say, no, 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 you get my lunch and if there's anything else left over, you can eat too. Uh, you remember that text, right? And sometimes you scratch your head, and at the end of it, he's, this is where he says, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we, have ought, we ought to have done, right? Now, how many of you have read that text? You're familiar with that text? How many of you understand the context of this text? Let's begin with the context. There's one, I saw that hand, good. <clears throat> so let's just start in verse three. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, let's stop there. We're going to hopefully be able to work our way through the rest of that passage in the next 35 minutes. Um, but let's see. We call this transactional forgiveness. This is, that's not a biblical term. This is uh, just a term that, that somebody came up with to describe this kind of forgiveness as opposed to other texts that are also telling us to forgive in a different way. So this is the first way. This is transactional forgiveness. We call it transactional because it requires a transaction to take place between two people. One person recognizes that they have sinned against the other, and so they go to the person they've sinned against and they ask them to engage in the transaction. I have robbed you, so to speak. I have defrauded you. I have, 
I, I've got sinfully angry at you. I, I took something of yours. I, you know, whatever it was, I punched you in the nose. And uh, whatever it happens to be, I sinned against you. And I need to ask you for something that I don't deserve. I need to ask you for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And the other person says, yes, I understand what you're asking, and I do. I cancel your debt. So this is transaction. It's just like going to the store and purchasing something, right? Both parties are involved in the transaction. And that's why it's called transactional forgiveness. Now, now, don't get bogged down too much in the details there. It's just that we call it transactional because both parties are involved in bringing about forgiveness and reconciliation. Does that make sense? But before we consider the respective responsibilities here, I need to point out to you the warning that Jesus gives here in verse 3. The very first words, be on your guard. Be on your guard. And I think uh, that's just a euphemistic way to say, um, put your seatbelt on and your crash helmet because what I'm about to say to you is going to be really, really hard to hear. This is one of the hard sayings of Jesus, I think, even if it's not listed in the hard sayings that people have written about. This one's hard. In verse 3, he says, be on your guard. He's saying, what I'm about to say to you is of paramount importance, and if you're not careful, you're going to miss the whole point. You think you understand forgiveness because you've been taught by the Pharisees or the Sadducees or whoever you have followed, and maybe you have learned forgiveness from your parents, and, and maybe, you, maybe they did a good job with that. Most of us, not so much. We learn forgiveness from the culture. We learn forgiveness from TV. Anything you learn from TV is suspect. If, now, if it's on the internet, you can believe it, right? Never mind. <laughs> forgiveness is heavy stuff. Forgiveness is difficult. So let's take a look at how Jesus teaches us to do it. How to perform transactional forgiveness. And I just want to get a look at your notes here. Um, yes, good. Transactional forgiveness is, is difficult. So how do we do it? First of all, if your brother sins, what's the word? Here. Rebuke him. Rebuke him. Now that sounds harsh. Sounds harsh. Um, let me just say, in, in our mamby-pamby culture where we are so easily offended and our emotions are so easily damaged, I don't know what damaged emotions are, but somehow we damage them, um, we're so fragile, we're just so fragile. You know, I can stand up here and, and talk about predestination all day long and, and hardly anybody will get offended. In... in in evangelicalism, at least in the circles that we kind of go around in, conservative people, um, the idea that you should rebuke someone because of their sin is really controversial. A lot of talk about this. A lot of talk about this. Don't go poking around in my life. You know, that's legalism. Uh, it seems to me that it's Jesusism. Because this is what Jesus is telling us. Now, Granted, there's more here than just rebuke. And, and that's the first thing that I want to talk to you about. The word rebuke implies that we address the sin in a tentative way. And I say that for two reasons. Number one, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says the same thing. Of course, that's the passage for church discipline. If your brother uh, sins, go and rebuke him. 
If he repents, you have won your brother. Now, that doesn't sound harsh, does it? If that's the goal, winning your brother back, then getting to that goal can't be done in a harsh way. And the other passage I think of is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, when, when the Apostle Paul says, even if a brother is caught in a sin, now that's interesting the way he words that. I wonder if he's talking, uh, leading up to that, about people who are just getting, he talks about biting and devouring one another, and I wonder how much of that biting and devour were over issues that weren't really sinful, they were just matters of preference, and, and, and it was causing friction because there were different preferences relative to, I don't know, in, in our day, it's education and it's feeding babies and it's, you know, things like that to produce friction between people. But he says in Galatians 6, 1, even if your brother is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual do what? Come on. Restore. Restore. So that's the goal. This is not take a hammer and go find a nail, something, something to pound on. No, it's go. go. Here, how about Jesus? Before you try to take out the speck in your brother's eye, remove the log in your own eye. And was it Jen Cup who talked about the broken contact in your eye? Was it you? I don't know. It was Damon? Okay. Uh, somebody a little while ago talked about having a contact break in their spouse's eye and how difficult it was and how careful you had to be to pull out the pieces without damaging the eye. You have to be very, very careful. And I think the, the tone of the scriptures that, re, that talk about dealing with sin in your brother's life is like being very, very careful to pull out each little piece with the utmost care because you don't want to cause any, any unnecessary damage. So here's, here's what I'm saying. The term rebuke here, we should understand that we rebuke in a tentative way. And by that I mean, and you're going to hear this again, we go in asking questions, not making accusations. Now, did I already give this phrase to you? Um, something we, we try to teach people a lot is this, this, this one. So there's a couple of phrases. The first one that I gave you a little while, a few day, weeks ago, was I do what I do because I want what I want. Here's another one, okay? You should just write this down and memorize it. Uh, it it's, it's not scripture, but I think it expresses scriptural meaning, scriptural truth in a condensed form here, and that is this. Um, questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Um, we got to be really careful. Uh, we got to go in in a tentative way. You don't just go to that person and slap him down with an accusation and a Bible verse. You approach him gently, you, you approach him circumspectly in order to communicate that you have his or her best interest at heart. And frankly, I think this is where relationships start running aground, right here at the first step of forgiveness. Often when a man commits a sin, uh, some minor infraction in the home, the wife immediately jumps on him and verbally um, berates him. Um, 
as if, as if the house were set on fire, when in fact it was, it was really, in the scheme of things, a pretty small thing. And, and, and the same is true in the opposite direction. Uh, we've seen cases where, where husbands are, are too quick to take an offense and, and in response crush their wife verbally. And, and you know what? If, if there's sin involved, then the sin needs to be addressed. But not like that. And then, if you get your facts wrong, now you've really complicated the problem because you've just contributed your sin to their sin. And now instead of one sin to, to be dealt with, now we have two. And if she responds to your second sin with a third sin, you see how it goes. Uh, these are complicating problems. And so Galatians 1, as I said, says, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And that's a critical warning. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Listen, there is no time that you're going to be more tempted to sin than when you've been sinned against. And there's probably no context when you're most tempted to sin when you're sinned against that's where it's more volatile than in the marriage relationship. Um, because you're so close and because of some history. And so you see, part, uh, practicing biblical forgiveness involves knowing not only what to do, but how to do it. This is not just mechanics. The heart has to be involved here. You've got to be concerned about the other person's soul, their relationship with God, their relationship with you, their relationship with others. And so the person who has sinned may need to be approached, but we should do it in a spirit of gentleness and meekness. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Now, I just want you to say that with me one time. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Now, you might say to your spouse, here's, here's some examples of how you might do that. You might say, sweetheart, is everything okay? If, you, if, if he or she is walking in the Spirit, that's going to communicate a lot more than what those words say. Um, honestly, my wife can give me a gracious and powerful rebuke just by looking at me in a certain way. Um, I remember one time saying something sarcastic at the dinner table, and my wife just went, <laughs> and that was like, it was, oh! <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's all I needed, you know? It took me a few minutes to formulate how I was going to say it, um, but engaging with the family... And transactional forgiveness is so important. And so we need to be able to do it in, with gentleness. She just knows how to do it with gentleness and grace. And the really beautiful thing is that whenever two people are generally walking in the Spirit, it's not going to take a lot of effort to do this. If you and your spouse are both walking in the Spirit and you're really trying not to sin in situations like this, I find uh, that uh, when there's conflict in my home and I'm kind of the epicenter uh, the, the prayer, I like short prayers in times like that because, you know, the emotions get going and it's hard, to, it's hard to think clearly about, you know, a lot of complexity. So I like short. And so a prayer that I pray frequently is, Lord, help me not sin with my mouth. Help me not sin with my mouth. Restrain me. Restrain my tongue. Restrain my heart. Restrain my mind so that we can engage in the transaction that needs to take place here in a manner that's pleasing to you. And the really beautiful thing is that when two people are trying to do that, when they're generally walking in the Spirit, 
This is all the further the transaction needs to go. Matthew 18, 15, you have won your brother. That's it. That's all that needs to happen. Why? Because a person who's walking in the Spirit is going to be quick to acknowledge their own sin. And listen, if somebody comes to you and, and they've seen something in your life, or they think they have, or they heard something that you said, or they think they have, and they come and they approach you about it, your first response shouldn't be, that can't possibly be true of me. But rather, knowing what a sinner you are, you ought to be able to say, hmm, I haven't thought about this before, but maybe they're right. Maybe you're right. Well, let's talk some more about this. Help me understand what you heard. And, and maybe they are wrong, but you didn't respond in such, such a way that added sin upon sin. You may not have had a real problem at the beginning, but now you had one because you blew up. Your bottle got shaken. I've been looking for a reason to lift this up. <laughs> and what came out of your heart was not good. And so Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now let's make two more observations here. To forgive involves making four commitments. Four commitments. To forgive involves making four commitments. And those are in your notes. Here they are. Number one, I will not remind you of this sin. I will not remind you of this sin. Now again, we're kind of at the end of the transaction here. Okay, we're going to come back, we're going to come back and, and do the rest of this. But let's, let's just fast forward the tape. The transaction has happened. When you say you're the offended party and you're going to grant forgiveness, and uh, when you say, I forgive you, that is not an empty, vacuous phrase. It's not a throwaway word. What you're actually saying is, I cancel the debt, and I'm not going to bring this up against you anymore. I'm not going to be like a credit card company. They're not allowed to do this, but let's say you paid off your debt or someone paid it for you. For them to come back and say, you know what, I, you get a letter in the mail. Dear customer, we remember how much you used to owe us. <laughs> I mean, and there wouldn't be any emotion tied to that, but you know what? Um, in relationships there is, that can be really hurtful. If you keep bringing up that sin, choosing to remember it against them, bad, very bad, very bad. And so commitment number one, I will not remind you of this sin. Number two, and, and by the way, there's an exception to that. Um, if it is, you believe it will be loving and necessary to point out a pattern of sin in that person's life, you need to do that very carefully and very graciously. And there may be sometimes when you've got a great opportunity to do it, but the timing's not right or the emotions are way out of whack and you, you better not. Better not. But again, if you're, if you're walking in the Spirit and you're trying to help each other in the midst of this conflict, you're trying to get to the point of forgiveness, then you might say, I, I realize last time we talked about this, I said I forgive you, and I really do forgive you from the heart, but the only reason I want to bring up last time is, is to show you that maybe there's a pattern here that you should be aware of. Just think about that. It's done for me. So I'm not going to bring this up against you. Number two, I'm not going to remind this of you, uh, to you, whatever. Uh, number two, I will not mention it to anyone else. I'm not going to get on the phone to your girlfriend or somebody at the office and say, let me tell you what my wife did or my husband. 
I'm not going to mention it to other people. We're not going to talk about it in small group. I'm not going to talk about it in church, Bible study, whatever. Number three, I will not allow my mind to dwell on this. This may be the hardest one. I'm not going to allow my mind to dwell on this. That's just temptation, and you need to battle it. And number four, I will not allow this to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. You say, well, that's really hard. I told you it was going to be hard. It is really hard. I'm not going to allow this to stand between us or hinder our relationship. It's so important that you choose not to remember it against them once it is forgiven. And to forgive, the, the only requirement, here's another observation, to forgive, the only requirement that Jesus um, requires is uh, for the sinner to make a verbal offer of repentance, a verbal offer of repentance. In other words, all the sinner has to do to get forgiveness is to acknowledge that their, their words or their deeds were sinful and to ask for forgiveness, to say, I repent, or, or something that communicates repentance. We're not going to get hung up on words here, but something that communicates a truly repentant heart and to ask for forgiveness. The only thing required by Jesus in this text is verbal repentance. You say, can you show me that? Yep, can show that to you. It's as clear as anything. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Okay, so <coughs> here's, a, here's an analogy. Let's, um, let's say that... Um, <laughs> Let's say that me and Pace Moorhead are out on his ranch and uh, we're, we're working on a fence together. And we're, we're trying to have some fellowship, so we're pretty close. Let's just say uh, Pace is a new believer, which he's not, but for the sake of, for the sake of illustration. And we're standing next to each other and, um, and we're hammering on this fence and he puts his hand up and I accidentally, accidentally hit his hand. And he turns around in anger and he grabs my shoulder and spins me around and punches me in the nose. And I stagger back, and I'm like, Pace! And he says, oh, Pastor, I'm so sorry. You know, I've been working on this anger problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to counseling, and uh, I, I know I tend to react, and I'm learning how to control this, and I'm so sorry. This is, it's a sin against God and a sin against you, and I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Let's just get back to work. And we get working, and, and, I, and I, I let the hammer go, and it, and it hits him on the knee. And he just, he's like the Incredible Hulk. And he grabs me and spins me around. Bam! Punches me in the nose, just reflexively, you know, like he grew up in New Jersey or something. And, uh, <laughs> and I fall down on the ground, and he goes, oh, Pastor, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did. I just did that 10 minutes ago, right? And I'm going, yes, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> And he helps me, I'm so sorry, I just didn't realize how ingrained this anger is within me and pray for me, but before you do that, I'm so sorry, it was a sin against God, and will you forgive me? And we get working on the fence again, and I'm hammering a little further down now, <laughs> and I hit a board, and it comes flying out and hits him in the head, and he comes running after me, <laughs> of course, I'm going to take off running. Okay, so how many times did Jesus say? Seven. How many times have I covered so far? Three. 
seven times in a single day. Listen, there is no time there to determine whether this is godly sorrow or whether it's worldly sorrow. You know, we, we hold people hostage with that, don't we? Well, I don't know if I'm going to forgive you. Let's see some godly sorrow. <laughs> I want to make sure it's only been a week. Jesus says seven times in a single day. The only requirement is verbal repentance. That's why Jesus starts off by saying, be on your guard. Put your crash helmet on. Pull your seatbelt extra tight because you are not going to believe this. Why? Why seven times in a single day? How many times did God have to forgive you yesterday? How many times did you sin? Seven? Did somebody say a lost count? What, what was that? Is that you, Ian? No, I'm just kidding. Um, beloved, this is why it's called transactional forgiveness. The person who has sinned against comes and lays down the charges. And then the person who has committed the sin acknowledges that their guilty is charged. And finally, the guilty party asked, asks for a precious and very much undeserved gift. Listen, it's always undeserved. It's always undeserved. And finally, the guilty party asks for that undeserved gift, forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And by the way, it is, will you forgive me? It is not, I'm sorry. Now, why isn't it, I'm sorry? Okay, we'll run out of time, so I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry doesn't admit any guilt. It just says, I feel sorrow. For you. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'm sorry if you were hurt? Probably heard a, a woman who's a politician right now say that. I'm sorry if you were confused. Well, who's, whose problem is it? Not hers, not yours. I feel sorrow that you got your feelings hurt. Hmm. That's no admission of guilt. Um, there was a there was a time right out here on the porch one time before this building existed. This was parking lot. And uh, I, I don't remember the details, but um, Brent and I uh, were working together, and this was fairly, er, uh, fairly early on in our uh, time working full-time together. And, um, and he went into this building. I think we, we were officing in the Burns building. He went into this building, and, uh, and he came out. And by then, I had gone to lunch while he was in there, and he came out, and, and that door was locked, and this door was locked. And an hour, hour and a half maybe, later, <laughs> and it was hot, and I came out, and he's sitting on the porch, and he's boiling, <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> and he comes out, and he says, Pastor, where have you been? And I said, I've been at lunch. What's the problem? And he said, you locked me out. And I said, Brother, you have key, right? And he said, yeah, but it's in there. And I said, uh, I said, gee, Brent, I feel sorrow for you right now. <laughs> I don't think there's any guilt on my part. I don't. But I do feel your pain. Let me open the door, okay? So sometimes I'm sorry is totally appropriate. In fact, I would say um, as you are asking forgiveness, it is good to communicate sorrow. But don't stop there. 
you have to complete the transaction. You have to ask for what you desperately need in this relationship. I need you to cancel my debt. I've sinned against you. Please, I realize I don't deserve it. But will you cancel it anyway? Because you want to be like Jesus to me. You don't have to say those words. That might not work, but... But that's what it is. By the way, it's not only not, I'm sorry, it's not, I apologize. An apology is simply making a defense, right? If you want to defend the Christian faith, we call that, what? Apologetics. You are making a defense, or you're giving excuses for why you did that sinful thing, but you're not really owning it as sin, And uh, so it's not apologize. I apologize. So true forgiveness comes when a person acknowledges they've sinned against God and sinned against another person or a group of people and asks them forgiveness. And by the way, it's important to note here that there's no such thing as in the Bible as transactional forgiveness without repentance. Now, there is another kind of forgiveness, and we haven't gotten there yet. But there's no such thing as transactional forgiveness, forgiveness that really brings reconciliation apart from repentance. And by that I mean, if the transaction is only half complete and the other person hasn't said, I forgive you, or something to that effect, then it is incomplete. Um, have you ever had someone, you know, maybe you've you're, you're, you got a disagreement with someone and they've been really hurt because of how they interpreted your actions or your words and maybe you did nothing wrong, and you're convinced you didn't do anything wrong, um, and, and maybe you're convinced you did nothing wrong because you're not seeing through eyes of humility and, and a willingness to repent and all of that stuff. We, we do that. We defend ourselves, right? But, but let's say that you find yourself in that position, and you're wrestling with that, and the other person comes and says, I forgive you. Does that help? No. I, I mean... I mean, what are you going to say? Oh, thank you. Oh, you were right. I was the loser all along. No, you're going to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. The jury's still out on this. Um, I forgive you? That doesn't help. When you come and grant forgiveness to someone who's not asking for it, it's insulting, it's inflammatory. It does nothing but short-circuit the God-ordained transaction of forgiving grace. And the relationship is left more damaged than it was before. And forgiving grace, and forgiving grace is going to be brought about and bring reconciliation with it. Um, the transaction needs to be complete. You husbands and wives, you need to master this. It's never going to be easy. It'll be easier once you establish this in your home. But it's always going to be hard because you're always going to have to subdue your pride. You're always going to have to see yourself a little more like Jesus sees you than what you're comfortable with. Let's make one more observation. Jesus says here that the only appropriate answer to the question, will you forgive me, whenever a person comes and acknowledges sin and asks, will you forgive me, the answer is always, always, always yes. I forgive you. Why? Because my purpose for living is to show the world what God is like. And what God is like is he is a forgiver. Even with regard to our great sin, 
And just hold your finger in Luke 17 and, and look at Matthew 18 for a second. Um, Matthew 18 is, is so critical in this regard, and we don't spend a lot of time on it uh, in, in this, but we'll refer to it a couple of times here. And the thing I want to show you is not where Jesus teaches what we're looking at in, in, Matthew, uh, in Luke 17, um, although the one in 18 is more familiar. What I do want you to look at is uh, the parable of forgiveness starting with verse 21, and Peter comes and says to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Um, wow, that would be magnanimous, he thought. Well, Jesus is really going to be impressed with me being willing to forgive seven times. Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times. It's interesting because in Luke he does, but it's seven times in a day. But now he says, I say uh, 70 times seven. And then he talks about this scenario, this, this story about a kingdom. And there's a king, and, and he has a, a, a ruler under him. And, uh, and maybe a bunch of rulers, but he focuses on this one guy, this one servant, who apparently somehow squandered the equivalent of the nation, the nation's gross domestic product. Okay, that's, if you do the math here, what he's talking about, the, the amount of money, he basically lost a whole year's worth of profit for the nation. I mean, this was a big political guy, and somehow he really blew it. And the king says, hey, you know, why don't we, why don't we take an account from everybody and see how everything's going? And this, and this servant comes in, and he says, uh, where's, where's all the money? You lost billions of dollars. And the man says, Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. He was going to get thrown into jail until he could pay it back. And you know the story, right? And the, and, and the, uh, the master says, I'll forgive you. And then the other guy goes out. The guy who's forgiven goes out, and he finds one of his servants who owns him $20, and he begins choking him and requiring him to pay every cent. And at the end, here's what we read. Um, Verse 31, so when the fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I've had mercy on you? And the Lord, his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. Beloved, this is so important for us. You've got to master this. You have to master it. If you want your marriage and your family to demonstrate to the world what God is like, this is where the gospel begins. Forgiveness. You have been forgiven. The only reason you're justified and you stand in Christ before the eyes of God is because you have been forgiven. You were that servant. You lost the gross domestic product of the nation. That's the degree that your sin is in the eyes of God. And yet he's forgiven it. 
And will you go to your brother or your wife or your husband or your dad or your mom and require that 20 bucks back or I'm going to choke you to death? That's the way we act toward each other. We have to master this. The only answer to will you forgive me for a believer is yes. You say, what if he repeats the sin? Well, that's a good question. And notice again, um, Jesus says uh, that's exactly what this, in, in Luke 17, that's exactly what he's got going on. He, he does it seven times in a single day. Um, so many times I hear of a brother or sister who went home after counseling or some discipleship encounter and convicted of their sin. They lay out their sin before their spouse, con- confessing that they had sinned against God and against them. They ask for forgiveness, and it's granted, but then something happens. A few hours goes by, and they commit that same sin again, and the spouse says something like, you hypocrite. I knew you weren't serious. I knew you were just doing that to get your own way. I knew you didn't mean it. I knew you wouldn't really repent. You're never going to change. Or some words that bring about that final conclusion, communicate that. And you know what? That's just wrong. That's just sin. If your response to a, a believer or a spouse is, is like that, it's just sinful. Jesus says even if he commits the sin seven times in a single day and refer, returns to you and says, I repent, you forgive him. And I want to suggest to you here that Jesus is acknowledging that occasionally lasting repentance takes time. Think of how patient he has been with you all of these years. How many times have you gone back to the Father and said, Lord, here I am again, confessing the same old sin. I'm so sick of confessing it. And he never says, I'm so sick of hearing it. It takes time. Often it it comes and fits and starts. And how many years has he been struggling with with this pattern of sin in his life and and we think he's going to overcome it instantly? Sometimes, by God's grace, that happens. Sometimes when a person comes to Christ, their dominant sin disappears. I've heard that with people. You know, I came to Christ, I never smoked a cigarette again. I never had another drop of liquor again. Uh, I know a couple of people who have said, when I came to Christ, God cleaned up my language almost instantaneously. Those words in my heart disappeared. But some of those same people would probably also say, but there are other things in my life that the Lord apparently wants me to struggle through. Uh, One brother came to me and he said, you know what? Alcohol disappeared. Smoking, man, I just am having a hard time breaking that one. We are called to be gracious and gentle with that person as he or she struggles through. Now, you may say, oh, Pastor Dan, That is really hard. That sounds unreasonable. It sounds unreasonable. Well, the apostles responded in a similar way. Look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Lord, that's unreasonable. This This is really hard. Increase our faith. And so, okay, i got two more minutes here, so let me try to do this quickly. Notice Jesus' response. And the Lord said to him, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
What's he saying? You don't need more faith. You don't need more faith. Lord, increase our faith. No, no, not going to do that. That's not what you need. Oh, okay. Then what do I need? What do I need? Good question. Verse 7. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he or she comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, then you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which he was commanded to do, does he? So you too, when you do all things which you are commanded you, which are commanded you, say, quote, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done, end quote. What's he saying? You don't need more faith. What you need is obedience. You don't need more faith. Am I not your master? And do I not call the shots here? I'm telling you this for your good, but it is a command. I am so concerned that my father gets represented in your relationships that I'm laying this out not as a suggestion. This is a command. Forgive. Forgive. You don't need more faith. You need to obey me. You say, that sounds like legalism. Is it legalism? Is it? Um, I would say to you, it is the path to life in your marriage and in your home and among your friends. And the question is not, are you sinning against each other? You are. Come on. We have a dog. I love that dog. <laughs> okay. We have a dog, and guess what, guess what that dog does? Barks. I know you're shocked by that, right? thought that was going to be something deep. Guess what? You're a sinner. Guess what sinners do? They sin. Oh, somebody was quick over here. Sin. That's right, you sin. And you sin against one another. And you hurt each other. Let's stop pretending that that's an anomaly. Let's stop pretending that that's not the reality of how we relate to one another. The reality is we are hardwired to sin against each other. And Christ is being more and more and more fully formed in us. But it is progressive sanctification, right? We are not at the end. We are at the beginning. We have not reached the finish line, but we are on the road. And we're growing. And in the process of growing, two sinners growing, you will grant forgiveness more quickly, you will ask for it more quickly, and restoration will happen more quickly, but it's got to begin, and it's got to begin on God's terms. And so here's what I would ask you to do. In your heart of hearts, ask, God, search me. Would you search me? How have I sinned against the people closest to me? And what do I need to ask forgiveness for? 
And be careful how you do it. If you need help doing this, we can help. A lot of people can help around here. A lot of people have been through this, and it's so helpful. Every time I go through it, it helps me. It reminds me. And we teach people to say it like this. When I spoke those sinful, angry words, when I spoke those angry words to you, or when I was sarcastic, uh, sinfully sarcastic, it was a sin against God and a sin against you. And I'm so sorry. It must have made you feel so unloved and disrespected. And I need to ask you for something that I don't deserve. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? There's no magic in the words. We get this pattern from the prodigal son who said, um, Jesus says, when he came to his senses, he's out eating pig food, and he says, oh, this is what I will do. He's planning, forethought, right? So critical. This is what I will do. I will go to my father, and I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. But you know what? You can do those words and not mean it. The clearest representation of this phrase, I've sinned against you and I need to ask your forgiveness, or sinned against you and against God. You know who gave the clearest one in the Bible that I found? Pharaoh told Moses, I have sinned against you and against God. And he didn't mean it. It's important because you can teach your children to do these things. We've seen this with our kids. They're not here now, are they? Get into a little fight. Okay, look, you offended your brother. You need to go make that right. Okay. Uh, brother, when I said those things, it was sin against God and a sin against you, and will you forgive me? Oh, that was from the heart. <laughs> right? You can say anything. We're going to talk about this in the service this morning. You can pray in Jesus' name and not be praying in Jesus' name. You can just be tacking it on the end of your prayer. Beloved, this is so critical. This is transactional forgiveness. Next week, we're going to talk about heart forgiveness. Heart forgiveness has to start engaging before you do transactional forgiveness. But what happens if the person you need to forgive is dead? Or what happens if the person you need to forgive isn't responsive to your attempts to engage in the transaction? What do you do then? Come back next week. And we'll find out. Let's pray. Father, I, I long to see in this congregation a, an attitude of forgiveness, a willingness to forgive. Um, we get so bogged down and decide issues that really aren't the main issue when the main issue is unforgiveness and we're unwilling to address that. And so, Father, I pray, may there not be any irreconcilable differences between two believers, especially between two married believers or two siblings in the church. And when there is, Father, I pray that you would grant the offended party the capacity to forgive and to not remember that sin against them because we live to show the world what God is like we live to show the world what Christ is like and what his gospel is like. And so teach us these things, Lord, for our own joy, for the health of our church and our families. Teach us these things and give us the courage to address them 
as you require. Lord, these things we pray in, in the name of our Savior and in the, his name because we know this is your will. We have read it in your word. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.